What intrigue, what political machinations and what ecology, spice and water, everything. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the first half of December's book, Dune, by Frank Herbert, published in 1965. So the idea of the podcast is it will spend a month reading a book hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. It'll be on the last Friday of this year, the 31st of December. What better way to spend New Year's Eve? We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book. Or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something you agree or really disagree with. I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So, I've read up to page 234. So, from the blurb, which seems to have a huge amount of spoilers, the Emperor is transferring stewardship of Arrakis, the spice planet, from House Harkonnen to House Atreides. The Harkonnens are going to fight back. Paul of House Atreides is going to travel from Castle Caladan to Arrakis, which is called the Doom Planet, and he is 15 years old. His mother, Jessica, lets in a powerful older woman who's called a Reverend Gaius, and she tests whether he is human using a box that makes him feel fear, and he passes her test. Quote, why do you test for humans, he asked. To set you free, she answered. Free? she goes on once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a man's mind paul quoted and she says right out of the butlerian jihad and the orange catholic bible she said but what the oc bible should have said is thou shalt not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind have you studied the mentor in your service now a mentor is a master of arms or a personal bodyguard i studied with thufir hawat the great revolt took away a crutch she said it forced human minds to develop schools were started to train human talents bene Gesserit schools says paul she nodded we have two chief survivors of those ancient schools the bene Gesserit and the spacing guild the old lady the reverend gaius mother of Benny Jessere believes Paul may be the Kvizatz Haderach, which is a prophesied person that can connect space and time. Quote, the one who can be many places at once. Then the evil Baron Harkonnen has given the Atreides family Arrakis as a honey trap in exchange for Caledon. The Baron's Manta is trained in logic, has been promised to Lady Jessica. The Manta has been, quote, encased in a human body. I've put, they are possibly robots, not human. The Baron's mentor is a spice addict. That is why the Baron has power over him. And they discuss Paul together. Quote, the Baron says, what of the dukeling, the child Paul, my dear Peter? And he says, the trap will bring him to you, Baron, Peter muttered. That's not my question, the Baron said. You'll recall that you predicted the Bene Gessery, which would bear a daughter to the Duke. You were wrong, eh, Manta? I'm not often wrong, Baron, Peter said. 
So this is the second time that they mention that Paul should be female. The mentor outlines their plan of attack on Duke Leto, and he mentions that Leto may hide. The Baron says, quote, I must have him dead and his line ended. What evil. They know that Duke Leto knows about the plan. Quote, Peter said, while Howard's occupied with the lady, Jessica, will divert him further with uprisings in a few garrison towns and the like. These will be put down. The Duke must believe he's gaining a measure of security. Then, when the moment is ripe, we'll signal Dr. Ewer and move in with our major force. Two legions of Sardaka disguised in Harkonnen livery. Sardaka fade further breathe, his mind focused on the dread imperial troops, the killers without mercy, the soldier fanatics of the Padishah Emperor. Fade is the nephew of the evil Baron. The Baron's mentor thinks that the Baron's nephew is too young to hear the secret plans. And my prediction is that the 16-year-old nephew may spill the beans in some way. Peter, this is the lamentor of the Baron, concludes with, quote, since House Harkonnen is being used to do the Imperial dirty work, we've gained a true advantage. It's a dangerous advantage, to be sure, but if used cautiously, will bring House Harkonnen greater wealth than that of any other house in the Imperium. You have no idea how much wealth is involved, Fade, the Baron said. Not in your wildest imaginings. To begin, we'll have an irrevocable directorship in the Choam Company. Fade Ratha nodded. Wealth was the thing. Shoham was the key to wealth. Each noble house dipping from the company's coffers, whatever it could under the power of the directorships. Those Shoham directorships, they were the real evidence of political power in the Imperium, passing with the shifts of voting strength within the Landsrad as it balanced itself against the Emperor and his supporters. Peter continued, If matters go as planned, House Harkonnen will have a sub-fief on Arrakis within a standard year. Your uncle will have dispensation of that fief. His own personal agent will rule on Arrakis. More profits? Fade Rautha said. Indeed, the Baron said, and he thought, it's only just. We're the ones who tamed Arrakis, except for the few mongrel Fremen hiding in the skirts of the desert, and some tame smugglers bound to the planet almost as tightly as the native labour pool. And the great houses will know that the Baron has destroyed the Atreides, Peter said. They will know. Gaius, the Reverend Mother, berates Jessica for bearing a boy. Quote, you were told to bear only daughters to the Atreides, and Jessica pleaded, it means so much to him. Gaius goes on, you thought only of your duke's desire for a son, and his desires don't figure in this, and Atreides' daughter could have been wed to Harkonnen heir and sealed the breach. You've hopelessly complicated matters. We may lose both bloodlines now. She goes on, the race knows its own mortality and fears stagnation of its heredity. It's in the bloodstream, the urge to mingle genetic strains without plan. The Imperium, the Shoham Company, all the great houses, they are bits of flotsam in the path of the flood. You know as well as I do what forces surround us. We've a three-point civilization: the imperial household balanced against the federated great houses of the Landsrad, and between them the guild with its damnable monopoly on interstellar transport. In politics, the tripod is the most unstable of all structures. It'd be bad enough without the complication of a feudal trade culture, which turns its back on most science. Could Paul be a girl? I'm thinking. Are we going to see a marriage between Paul and Fade Rather? This is perhaps wishful thinking. Gaius warns Jessica that Paul may not be the Bene Gesserit totality, 
which is the object, thing or person that unites space and time that they have been hoping and keeping the bloodline pure for. She also says, quote, We may be able to salvage you, doubtful but possible, but for your father, nothing. When you've learned to accept that as a fact, you've learned a real Bene Gesserit lesson. A child's history of the Mu'ad Dib clearly shows that this is Paul, this Bene Gesserit totality. Hawat, who is the mentor and master of assassins for the Atreides family, goes to Paul's room and they discuss the fierce storms on Arrakis. Paul says, why don't they have weather control? And the mentor says, Arrakis has special problems. Costs are higher and there'd be maintenance and the like. The guild wants a dreadful high price for satellite control and your father's house isn't one of the big rich ones, lad. Paul remembers Gaius saying how inhospitable Arrakis is. And the Fremen, who are the renegade people of the desert, live in smelly rehydration suits because water is so scarce. Gurney Halak, who is the comic troubadour warrior and master of arms, appears. He is eager for Paul to be able to protect himself. In a note from the Dictionary of Mad Dib, we read that Dr. Ewer betrays Duke Leto. So that's a bit of a spoiler alert. Ewer appears and says his father is going to arrive soon to see him. Quote, Paul began pulling on his clothes. He felt excitement that his father could be coming. They had spent so little time together since the Emperor's command to take over the fief of Arrakis. And then Dr. Ewer discusses the different tribes on Arrakis. Quote, there are two general separations of the people. Fremen, they are one group, and the others are the people of the Graben, the Sink and the Pan. There's some intermarriage, I'm told. The women of Pan and Silk villages prefer Fremen husbands. Their men prefer Fremen wives. The most interesting feature, of course, is their eyes, totally blue, no whites in them. He talks of the worm and storms that make the South uninhabitable. Dr. Yui gives Paul an orange Catholic Bible. Paul's father enters and Paul is thinking of the old woman's words. The reverend mother seems to know that the father, Leto, is going to come to a sticky end. And Paul says, did she warn you? And Duke Leto just shrugs it off. He talks of the value of spice, and Paul says, quote, Whoever had stockpiled melange could make a killing. Melange is the spice. Others would be out in the cold. The Duke nodded. The Harkonnens have been stockpiling for more than 20 years. Those evil Harkonnens. Leto's plan to stop the uprising of imperial-backed Harkonnens is to train up the Freemen, a strong people on Arrakis who have been neglected or overlooked by the Harkonnens. And Leto says Paul could be a mentor. They all arrive at Arrakis, and Leto gives Jessica a noble Fremen lady as a housekeeper called Mapes. Mapes presents Jessica with a Chris knife. Quote, my lady, Mates pleaded. She appeared about to fall to her knees. The weapon was sent as a gift to you, should you prove to be the one. And as the means of my death, should I prove otherwise, Jessica said. She waited in the seeming relaxation that made the Bene Gesserit training so terrifying in combat. Now we see which way the decision tips, she thought. 
Slowly, Mapes reached into the neck of her dress, brought out a dark sheath. A black handle with deep finger ridges protruded from it. She took sheath in one hand and handle in the other, withdrew a milk-white blade, held it up. The blade seemed to shine and glitter with light of its own. It was double-edged like a kinjal, and the blade was perhaps 20 centimetres long. She believes Jessica fulfils a prophecy, quote, the one, but only thanks to Jessica's clever deception. Dr. Ewer chats with Jessica, quote, this is Dr. Ewer thinking, she thinks I worry for her, he blinked back tears, and I do, of course, but I must stand before that black baron with his deed accomplished and take my one chance to strike him there when he is weakest in his gloating moment. So he has a plan to attack the baron, to double-cross the baron. And this quote reminded me so much of the previous book, The Bluest Eye. It really reminds me of Peckler, Breedlove. Quote, and this is Dr. Ewer speaking, We've been uprooted. That's why we're uneasy. And Jessica replies with, And how easy it is to kill the uprooted plant, she said, especially when you put it down in hostile soil. Just like those marigolds that wouldn't grow in the bluest eye. They discuss how the local population are unhappy that the Atreides are using their water. And Jessica mentions why there's a feud that exists between the Atreides and the Harkonnens. Quote, the Baron cannot forget that Leto is a cousin of the royal blood, no matter what the distance, while the Harkonnen titles came out of the Shoam pocketbook. But the poison in him, deep in his mind, is the knowledge that an Atreides had a Harkonnen banished for cowardice after the Battle of Corin. The old feud, Ewer muttered, and for a moment he felt an acid touch of hate. The old feud had trapped him in its web, killed his wana, or worse, left her for Harkonnen tortures, until her husband did their bidding. The old feud had trapped him and these people were part of that poisonous thing. The irony was that such deadlines should come to flower here on Arrakis, the one source in the universe of melange, the prolonger of life, the giver of health. Now, Wana is Dr. Ewer's wife. So that is why Ewer is under the spell of the Harkonnens, or the power of the Harkonnens. Paul is in bed and a hunter-seeker tries to attack him. He destroys it. And Shadow Mapes appears and says, quote, you have a traitor in your midst. Jessica discovers an oval door and it's an airlocked garden that's using up loads of resources, for example, water. She discovers a message from the former resident Lady Fenrig saying that Paul's bedroom is full of traps. Quote, I do not know the exact nature of the menace, but it has something to do with a bed. The threat to your duke involves defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. Lieutenant, if you're in America. Interesting that the bed, usually a secure place, is where the danger lies. So the letter says that Leto and Paul are in danger. Jessica tells Paul and she sees a secret message being sent across the landscape. Quote, messages between Harkonnen agents. Duke Leto keeps quoting, saying, they tried to take the life of my son. He musters Gurney to recruit some men, and then they hold a council. It's obvious that the Harkonnens are evil and have left broken machinery around. Stilgar, who's a Fremen, asks Duncan to fight alongside the Fremen. And the Chris knives are very important. They can't leave Arrakis. They are owned by the Fremen. 
Duncan Idaho then is recruited to join the Fremen. He has two masters now then, the Fremen and the Atreides. The Harkonnen want these Chris knives. They're ground from the tooth of a sandworm. And with them, they can penetrate any siege, which is a Fremen cave stronghold. It is decided that the disused bases on Arrakis must be found since they contain valuable supplies. Then Howard and Leto have a conversation. Howard says he found a note from a Harkonnen underground agent suggesting that Jessica, who is Leto's concubine, may be disloyal. She may cause Leto's downfall. And Howard reports that the Fremen think Paul is Mahadi, the chosen one. Kynes, the planetologist, demonstrate the moisture suits and he takes them out into the desert and describes the monstrous worms who live in symbiosis with this spice. The Duke saves a spice crawler and all the men on board from a sandworm. And then we have a scene in the dining hall. They discuss a water shipper and it transpires that Jessica has befriended a smuggler called Esma Tuek, who will be able to get them off Arrakis, quote, if all else fails here. Leto rises and makes a speech, and then, quote, the Duke lifted his water flagon and this time emptied its remaining half onto the floor, knowing that the others around the table must do the same. He's angry and uncertain, Jessica thought. The loss of that factory crawler hit him more deeply than it should have. It must be something more than that loss. He acts like a desperate man. She lifted her fork, hoping in the motion to hide her own sudden bitterness. Why not? He is desperate. He's spilling this precious water. Why is he doing that? Is he making a statement that I will make water commonplace? Or is he making a statement, I have power over the water? What do you think? Jessica discloses that the Guild Bank representative is a Harkonnen agent. And there is an implication that water on Arrakis would not cause any problems. Butte, the water shipper, gets defensive. This is where his wealth lies, the scarcity of water. Has this butte chap been stockpiling water? From the conversation, Paul senses that there is water on Arrakis. Duncan Idaho is discovered drunk on spice, and we hear that Jessica is pregnant with the Duke's daughter. Howard and Jessica argue, and she is able to manipulate him physically using her Bene Gesserit training. Then we have a section with Duke Leto. Leto finds Tuek, the smuggler, the one that was going to help smuggle Paul and Jessica if they needed to escape. He finds him dead and he finds Mapes dead. And Ewer gives the Duke a false tooth so that he can kill Baron Harkonnen. It's filled with gas. Although Ewer is offering up Leto to the Baron, he has promised he will protect Jessica and Paul. And Jessica wakes to find the Baron standing over her. Peter, his mentor, takes the offer of a duchy instead of Jessica, and Jessica and Paul are shipped to be dumped in a desert. Scarface, who is a, just a horrible character, used to ship them, uses very lower-class language. More on that later. They overpower their captors using, quote, the voice... I'm thinking, is there a comment here on how highborn or posh people have oratorial skills that lower class of person just cannot attain? Discuss. Asadakar, who is the Emperor's elite fighter, quizzes Yue about Leto. Although Yue is a key player in Leto's capture, he's made every effort to strike back at the Baron. One, he's given him a gaseous tooth to try and kill 
the Baron, and two, he's planted a Frem kit, a desert survival kit, in Jessica and Paul's Thopter. Now, Thopter is a helicopter-type craft. In return for giving Baron Harkonnen the Duke, the Baron will stop you as Wana, who's his wife, from being in pain and let him join her. But instead, he kills you via Pitta, of course. His man of arms, he doesn't do any of the dirty work. Lita is brought to the Baron and Peter, and the drugs administered by Ewer on Duke Lita are beginning to wear off. And Peter is quite a sadist. Listen to this. Quote, We caught one of your men disguised as a Fremen, the Baron said. We penetrated the skies quite easily, the eyes, you know. He insists you were sent among the Fremen to spy on them. I've lived for a time on this planet, Cher Cousin. One does not spy on those ragged scum of the desert. Tell me, did you buy their help? Did you send your woman and son to them? Lito felt fear tighten his chest. If you have sent them to the desert folk, the search won't stop until they're found. Come, come, the Baron said. We don't have much time and pain is quick. Please don't bring it to this, my dear Duke. The Baron looked up at Peter, who stood at Lito's shoulder. Peter doesn't have all his tools here, but I'm sure he could improvise. Improvisation is sometimes the best, Baron. Hot tallow on the back, perhaps, or on the eyelids, Peter said. Perhaps on other portions of the body. It's especially effective when the subject doesn't know where the tallow will fall next. It's a good method, and there's a sort of beauty in the pattern of pus white blisters on naked skin, eh, Baron? Exquisite, the Baron said, and his voice sounded sour. Those touching fingers, Leto watched the fat hands, the glittering jewels on baby fat hands, their compulsive wandering. There we go, those baby fat hands. There's that largest, or ageism again. Leto bites down on the poison gas tooth. He kills Peter, but not the Baron. The Baron promotes the Eakin Nefford, the captain of the guard. And the Baron asks for a boy to be brought to his bedchamber, drugged so that he can be raped. Quote, the one with the lovely eyes that looks like Paul Atreides, just in case you didn't think the Baron was evil enough. Then we have a scene with Paul and Jessica. They're newly stranded. Paul explains to Jessica, using his incredible insight, that, quote, the Freyman are paying the guild for privacy, paying in a coin that's freely available to anyone with desert power, spice. So the Freyman control the planet. And with the death of Leto, Paul seems to have gained incredible insight. He is concerned that he doesn't feel lost, though. Paul can see that he and Jessica are Harkonnen. Jessica is the Baron's daughter, and there ends part one. Wow, what a lot of excitement and intrigue. So part two of the novel begins. Jessica and Paul are stranded in the desert and they're being hunted by the Harkonnen thopters, those ornithopters. And Thifa Howat, who is Leto's mentor, muses that Jessica must be the traitor. Thufir meets with the Fremen and they prove themselves able warriors against the Emperor's elite Sardaukar force. And at the end of the chapter... Thufir Howard is caught out by a thrown, stunning projectile. Dun, dun, dun. And that's halfway through the book. So some interesting questions to come out of this novel. What will become of Paul and Jessica? I'm guessing from the, spoiler alert, blurb on the back of the book that he will lead the Fremen to victory against the evil Harkonnens. And what will become of the Baron? Death hopefully. Probably at the hands of Paul. He certainly deserves it, doesn't he? Some interesting ideas to come out of this. The evil Baron displays some signs of maybe 1960s kind of problematic largism and homophobia. What do you think? Have a listen to this. This is a description of the evil Baron. Quote, 
I am hungry, the Baron rumbled, and he rubbed his protruding lips with a beringed hand, stared down at Fade Rautha through fat enfolded eyes. Send for food, my darling. We will eat before we retire. Those strange lips. And then we've got more later on in that part, when the Baron strikes. Quote, Jessica looked up at the Baron. He wore a yellow cape that bulged over his portable suspensors. The fat cheeks were two cherubic mounds beneath spider-black eyes. She had never before seen the man who entered to stand beside the Baron, but the face was known, and the man, Peter de Vried, the mentor assassin. She studied him, hawk features, blue ink eyes that suggested he was a native of Arrakis. The subtleties of movement and stance told her he was not, and his flesh was too well firmed with water. He was tall, though slender, and something about him suggested effeminacy. And we have more sort of fatism when describing the Baron later. Quote, he adjusted one of the little suspensors that guarded his fat body against the pull of gravity. A smile creased his mouth, pulled at the lines of his jowls. And remember the quote about the Baron's wandering hands and him asking for a boy to be taken to his bedchamber, drugged so that he can be raped. I find it particularly problematic that the only gay character in the novel so far is also evil and predatory. And possibly we've got a bit of problematic sexism, a typical female trope. This is from the Mad Dib family commentaries by the Princess Irian. Quote, The Reverend Mother must combine the seductive wiles of a courtesan with the untouchable majesty of a virgin goddess, holding these attributes in tension so long as the powers of her youth endure. For when youth and beauty have gone, she will find that the place between, once occupied by tension, has become a wellspring of cunning and resourcefulness. And of course, the totality is gender-based, so we've got some genderist sexism. Also, we have this image of the crow and Gaius is typical crone features quote the old woman was a witch shadow hair like matted spider webs hooded round darkness of features eyes like glittering jewels a mapes is also described in a crone way Listen to this. Quote, Jessica World stared down at a knobby, grey-haired woman in a shapeless sack dress of bondsman brown. The woman looked as wrinkled and desiccated as any member of the mob that had greeted them along the way from the landing field that morning. Every native she had seen on this planet, Jessica thought, looked pruned dry and undernourished, yet Leto had said they were strong and vital. And there were the eyes, of course, that wash of deepest, darkest blue, without any white secretive, mysterious. Jessica forced herself not to stare. Every time I hear about these blue eyes, I'm thinking of Peckler Breedlove from the previous book. We've got this wonderful pathos of leaving home. The first 50 pages are imbued with this longing expressed through Paul, who I think he really loves his Caledon, and he doesn't really want to move to Arrakis. It's an interesting idea of children growing up and exceeding their parents. Paul and Jessica, when they're captured by the Harkonnens and taken away, he gains such insight over Jessica. Quote, It's the look of terrible awareness, she thought, of someone forced to the knowledge of his own mortality. He was indeed no longer a child. The underlying import of his words began to take over her mind, pushing all else aside. Paul could see ahead, aware of escape for them. There's a way to evade the Harkonnens, she said. The Harkonnens, he sneered. Put those twisted humans out of your mind. He stared at his mother, studying the lines of her face in the light of the glow tab. The lines betrayed her. She said, You shouldn't refer to people as humans without... Don't be so sure you know where to draw the line, he said, interrupting. We carry our past with us, and mother mind, there's a thing you don't know and should. We are Harkonnens. 
he's really almost outgrowing his mother in terms of mental ability and knowledge. All the way through this first half, we have the idea of royalty. It's almost like reading a book set in medieval Europe. We've got this barons, we've got emperors, we've got dukes, we've got duckle signets, all this medieval royalty imagery. Race is obviously very important all the way through. The Fremen have evolved very different racial characteristics, for example, their blue eyes. And ecology is a very important topic. The scarcity of water. And now what does this mean? It means we have water smugglers. It means we have still suits, which are suits that reconstitute your bodily fluids so that you can survive the desert. And we have the worms, and they do not live in harmony with Fremen. They are dependent on the spice too. So much of the book is this very cloak and dagger, political, reading emotions and diplomacy. For example, when Jessica invites the smuggler into her coterie, listen to the way she talks about it. Quote, Jessica, looking down the length of the table, saw a faint trembling at the corners of Leto's mouth, noted the dark flush of anger on his cheeks. What has angered him, she asked herself. Surely not my invitation to the smuggler. She's always thinking and trying to use her abilities to read a situation. And then we've got that argument over cannibalism between the banker and Kynes. Listen to this, quote, Leto toyed with a fork, looked speculatively at Kynes. The ecologist's manner indicated a change in attitude towards the house of Atreides. Kynes had seemed colder on their trip over the desert. Slowly, the dinner conversation resumed, but Jessica heard the agitation in it. Their brittle quality saw that the banker ate in sullen silence. Kynes would have killed him without hesitating, she thought. And she realised that there was an offhand attitude towards killing in Kynes' manner. He was a casual killer, and she guessed that this was a Fremen quality. And then the argument between Jessica and Howard on the power of the Bene Gesserit training. Listen to this. Quote, and this is Howard speaking. I don't trust your Bene Gesserit motives. You may think you can look through a man. You may think you can make a man do exactly what you... you poor fool, Fufu, she raged. That's Jessica. He scowled, pushing himself back in the chair. Whatever rumours you have heard about our school, she said, the truth is far greater. If I wished to destroy the Duke or you or any other person within my reach, you could not stop me. And she thought... Why do I let pride drive such words out of me? This is not the way I was trained. This is not how I must shock him. Howard slipped a hand beneath his tunic where he kept a tiny projector of poison darts. She wears no shield, he thought. Is this just a brag she makes? I could slay her now, but ah, the consequences if I'm wrong. Jessica saw the gesture towards his pocket, said, Let us pray violence shall never be necessary between us. A worthy prayer, he agreed. Wonderful. Cloak and dagger. Trying to outwit the other person. Very enjoyable. Could it be argued that Jessica, by having her voice and not a physical weapon, such as a knife or a dagger or a sword as her main offensive weapon, is perpetuating a gender stereotype where females use their tongues to inflict pain and power and men for example, Paul, use swords. It's interesting, this lower-class dialect I mentioned with Scarface, his language is quite different to theirs, the more regal royal Paul and Jessica. Have a listen. Quote, You ain't likely ever to run into that old witch, one of the other troopers said. He went around to Jessica's head, bent over. It ain't getting our work done standing around here chattering. Take her feet and... Why don't we kill him here? Scarface asked. Too messy, the first one said, unless you want to strangle them. Me, I like a nice straightforward drop. Drop them on the desert like that, traitor said. 
cut them once or twice, leave the evidence for the worms, nothing to clean up afterwards. So you've got those ain'ts and ems. It's quite funny, really, and takes me out of the world building. It reminds me of the way the Uruk High speak in The Lord of the Rings sometimes, with this sort of mock Cockney, lower-class English dialect. Anyway, they're just some things that I thought were really interesting about the first half. I would love to hear your thoughts and what you thought was interesting in the first half. I'm sure it would be very different to what I thought was interesting. I'd like to talk a little bit about last month's book, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. There were some wonderful comments on Goodreads and I had some really interesting emails as well. Michael Finocchiarino said, quote, The cycle of violence feeds on itself, leading to tragic consequences for each of the characters. In today's America of immigration quotas, race baiting and continued white police on black violence, The Bluest Eye still remains as relevant today as when Toni Morrison published it in 1970. 23 years before 1993, the year she was justly awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. It really is a must-read. And Kenny said, quote, The main theme of The Bluest Eye is not simply racism, but internalised racism. The main characters in Morrison's novel have been conditioned to believe in their own inferiority. No one suffers this more than Pecola. Even members of her own race put her down for being ugly and for the darkness of her skin. In the end, Morrison forces us to walk in Pecola's shoes and learn of the painful worlds she inhabits. And she does so brilliantly. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Dune in three weeks, that's the 31st of December, January's podcast will be all about The Quiet American by Graham Greene. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Dune in three weeks. See you then. Mm-hmm.